Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. What I was asking for was God heal my mom. God fix this situation. God bring my family back. God make me feel loved. God make me feel whole. But what I really was ultimately craving, which even if he would have fixed all those things, I don't think it would have fixed the hole in my gaping heart was, God, I want to be in relationship with you. What is the state fruit of Georgia? It has to be the peach, but I don't know that that's the state nickname. Oh, well. Is it? Because it also could be peanuts. I think Alabama is peanuts. When I grew up, I would go to the National Peanut Festival in Dothan, Alabama. Virginia, which is where I went to high school, Mm -hmm. because I don't get to have grown up in a place forever, Mm -hmm. is is a big peanut place, too. There's Everyone claims to be peanuts. (laughs) (laughs) Is Illinois peanuts? Uh corn okay our wi- everybody's corn in spoiler the Midwest. alert security warning our wi-fi password involves corn this month which it changes every time and now that i'm here i just don't know but someone said it's an illinois thing and i don't get it yeah it's just like how there is that everywhere this is now we're giving it away i have seen no corn <laughs> uh, what's the worst case scenario if we give our wi-fi password out over the podcast sure people can like Come here. It's like a Starbucks. They would just come (laughs) and hang out. They would come here and use our (laughs) Wi-Fi. Well, actually, I mean, it's going to change in September. So They'll have seven days to use their Wi-Fi. So, yeah, I talked about how I traveled here because I'm Kate Shelnut and I'm not usually here. Do you introduce yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm here with Kate Shelnut. And uh, Kate, you were that was my back. That was like my backhanded way to be introduced. Like, am I am I just supposed to come and introduce myself? So you you live in Georgia. I live in Georgia. In what town? Augusta. It's where the Masters is. But yeah, I work remotely for CT. I'm here now, and you do a lot of stuff around CT. You do our social media. You, I'm counting on my fingers for those at home. You do news. You do online editorial stuff. So now you still have some involvement in hermeneutics. Yeah, I'm a writer and consultant. You used to be, like, be totally in charge of it. Yeah. I don't know if this is like coming off well for me, but yeah. Well, because you're doing more. And now I'm um, like remote Southern correspondent for The Calling. Mm-hmm. So if you guys stay tuned, there's going to be some episodes that feature my voice and people who I've met down in, in Georgia and Augusta and beyond. Yeah, exactly. So let's just list some names. Who are some people you've interviewed? So I went up to South Carolina and I interviewed Wendy Alsup, who's a female theologian, author. So that's coming. That's going to be on the, on the way. I interviewed a few pastors in Atlanta, Leonce Crump and John Onwuchekwa, who are both leading growing churches in the inner city kind of areas. And I've also interviewed some people in my community too. So I'll, I'll leave it mysterious so people can just subscribe and check every week to see who's going to be on. Yeah. And one of the hard things about doing these interviews, we have to do them like when we can, right? So we have like 15 in the can right now that we're just measuring out. So who knows when those will show up? It's just, they're going to show up when you least expect it. It's like the rapture. Yeah. I don't know. About people that. get ready. 
Kate's podcasts are coming. All I can say is that people should subscribe now. If they subscribe now, rate us now, put us on the top of their like iTunes or wherever they get their podcasts, then they will know not to miss any of these interviews. Speaking of ratings, I wanted to say this this week. They mean a lot to us. Uh, not just because they like make us feel warm, but because they help our podcast grow further up on the charts. One thing we would really appreciate for you guys to do, I thought like, ma- how do I get people to rate and review us? And I think the way to do it is to give you something to say. Here's what you could say. Who's your favorite guest? Tell us what you really appreciated hearing on the calling. Which guest was your favorite and why? Um, we're going to be reading those and we're going to be using those to make decisions in the future. It would also be good to hear if people have questions that we- that you should ask, because we ask a lot of the same questions about calling i don't know what you're talking about i have brand new questions but other people other people might be curious for different kinds of stories too do you want me to ask an eighth question it'd be cool to (laughs) i i was listening to a thing where people were asking like what book kind of change people's thinking maybe recommendations for i, I like haven't asked idea. any of these questions but like you know what was the book that changed the way you thought about christianity or maybe the contemporary christian music album that changed your life Who knows? so here's the deal if you leave a review for the calling i will use your question within reason that's nice in at least one interview yeah and if you leave like a suggestion for a person if i happen to be interviewing them i will use it I have a confession, and this is this is going to be my review, and I, I will also put it in iTunes, but this is a, okay. a preview review. I listen to the podcast. I do. I listen to it every week, uh-huh. and it, I grin the whole time because as someone who is working remotely, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Richard and Morgan or Richard and Caitlin, and it makes me feel like I'm in the office. I should just keep it on loop or something in the background I mean, so that software. I feel like i'm around you yeah we, we could i have a better idea we could just like leave google hangout up and you yes. can hear us all day i need to just be videoed in talking i've thought for a long time about putting google hangout just always up in the green in the main sort of area where, which is like our our hallway yeah. hangout and it you would just to have, get to hear the hallway come. Did you know it used to have a putting green that that's why it's called that yeah lots of ct lore you guys are learning so much about our office (laughs) i feel like all the things we've ever wanted to tell our audience are being said right now here's one thing we haven't talked about (laughs) who was on the show this week okay yes uh (laughs) bianca juarez olthoff is my guest today she always jokes about how her two last names are so different yeah they are very different and she does this thing where she impersonates her husband right so she's got she she does voices she's like a little comedian Mm -hmm. because she does this german voice and then a hispanic voice and i swear that i've listened to or attended if for the past few years and if if is the women's gathering um in austin and uh it's led by jenny allen but she's always been a speaker there and she just slays it everyone laughs so hard because she's got such a personality but also like lots of gospel depth so i'm looking forward to the conversation because she brings it she's the chief storyteller at a21 campaign which is Kristen Kane's organization. It's about all about abolishing injustice in the 21st century. They mainly focus on human trafficking, I believe. Yeah. And she's also the creative director for Propel Women. She's a great to talk to. One thing you'll notice is that it sounds like we'd known each other for years, but that's just what it's like to talk to Bianca. That's sweet. <laughs> it and was nice. 
I'm glad that both through you and then we reference that I'm doing more interviews, too, that we're going to have more women on the podcast mm-hmm. as a way to show that the calling doesn't always look like a guy becoming a pastor, that there's like all these different ways that people are being called to serve the church. Yeah, she actually talks about her um, call to ministry and people sort of trying to sway her from that call because of her being a woman and how she sort of thought through that. And you referenced before that I um, have been the editor of hermeneutics for the past few years. And the big goal of hermeneutics is to get more women's voices in CT as a whole. And we've seen like a lot of women rise up. So I'm excited to hear a woman on the podcast. And I'm also excited whenever I see more women in the print issue. This issue is a great issue for that because it's the first issue that we've got a column from K.A. Ellis, who's now writing. It's called The Persevering Church. And she works as an ambassador for International Christian Response. She's a doctoral candidate. She's been on other podcasts at CT. Yeah, so she was on an episode of Quick to Listen. Yeah, that's my big recommendation from this issue. So by this issue, you mean the September issue, which just came out. When people are listening to this, it will still have just come out. Hot in your summer mailbox. Yeah. So go check your mailbox. You should maybe have it in there. If you don't, give it a couple of days. Don't email us quite yet. <laughs> but it should be there. If you don't have a subscription, you're not going to see it in your mailbox. I have a solution for that. So we've got a special deal for those who listen to The Calling. It's a year-long subscription for our lowest possible rate. I literally have never seen it this low. This is as low as it gets. It's a good deal. It's a good deal. Head over to orderct.com slash the calling and subscribe. You'll get the September issue and then you'll get nine more after that, at least. Anyway, here's our interview with Bianca Juarez Olthoff. You said that you woke up at 4 a.m. 4.30 a.m.? 3.30 today. No. Are you serious? Yes. But on a regular basis for a while, you woke up at 4.30 a.m. It was more than a while. It was for about a good six months. And I was working on manuscript for a book. And right when I thought I had got, was so close to the end, it was the day before Thanksgiving. And uh, I was in a different country. I was with uh, my husband's family. And I was probably about 20 pages from the final edits of everything and my computer just went and the screen went black and I'm, I, I remember thinking no 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 and then it went to an audible no 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 I've tried rebooting it I tried googling is this you know am I doomed and sure enough um, I was working out of a native file I didn't save it and I uploaded it nowhere so on the on a holiday that's supposed to be filled with joyous gratitude I'm sitting there cursing my very existence uh-huh. um, there was no profane language Praise Jesus. My mom would be proud. Get uh, out of there yes. without doing that. But I literally was like, Jesus, take the wheel. And this was beyond Carrie Underwood. This is like a legit, I need a miracle right now. <laughs> and I called my father and he just gave me some wonderful words of wisdom. And I get to now hold the book in my hands that it is done. Because you were at a moment where the writers in the worst nightmare where you well, lost it was even everything. more dramatic. Okay, so Rich, we are going to be best friends by the end of this. And you don't <laughs> know how dramatic I am. But first of all, I'm Puerto Rican and Mexican, which means I'm just prone to dramatics already. But then my life is just kind of like a cluster sometimes where I was sitting in this hotel room. The book was already five weeks past due. And my editors were incredibly gracious. And there was some issues with some of the editorial help that was going on and uh, me missing deadlines. And this is trying, I mean, I'm trying to be a mom and a wife and work two jobs and be a communicator for for Jesus. Life is crazy. And you throw this, I just felt like a curveball. Are you really throwing me a curveball? So I want to know what the words of wisdom are at that moment. 
What could possibly have been said that solved this problem? Well, I don't want to throw my husband under the bus, but he won't mind because we've had this conversation. So my husband is a man of German descent. And if you know the Germans, the Germans are the organized ones who are always on the time and so good with their money and control their emotions. Okay. So when I call, and he doesn't have an accent, but when he frustrates me, I pretend that he's talking like this. Does he identify as a German? Yes, he actually is. Uh, he's kind of on a renaissance of his own history and learning German. We've been to Germany. Uh, gosh, I've been there four times. We've been married five years and he's been there 10 times. God's been just doing a great new work in Germany and he gets to go and build churches out there. Um, spiritually, not physically. So the first thing that I did when I lost the book and I realized it was gone uh, was I called my husband and he was just so like calm about it. And he's like, well, you know, it's okay. We're just, we're, this is going to work out. And you know, it's just not what I needed to hear in that moment. And I was like, you don't get it. (laughs) You don't get it. I lost everything. I just, I couldn't be rational. Like my husband's the rational one. I just, I couldn't be rational at that moment. So I call my father and again, it's the day before Thanksgiving and my dad is sitting upstairs in his bedroom and I FaceTimed him and I'll vividly remember, like, it's very rare that we have a holiday where my dad has a t-shirt on. He's just, he just likes being shirtless. And I called him on FaceTime <laughs> and there's my dad shirtless on the telephone with his, you know, thick Mexican accent. Hey, Bianca, happy Thanksgiving. And I was like, Dad, you won't believe it. And I could just see his face stop. And at that moment, I remember my dad as a child and him tucking us into bed and praying over us and wishing God's blessing and favor over our lives, speaking God's word over our lives. And it felt like I was having a moment again. I was a young kid calling out to my dad. And I realized in this moment that my physical dad and what my physical dad was saying were words for my spiritual dad. Okay. And he's just like, what you thought was your very best, this point is going to show you that God is going to do exceedingly abundantly than you thought. And you were writing out of your own striving. And these new words are going to be God-breathed words, and you're going to get through this. And it sounds so kind of like hyper-spiritual, like you would expect a pastor to say that. My father's a pastor. But there was something, how he said it, that it just resonated to the depths of my core. And so, and the fact that he was your dad who was saying it. Yes, yes. That's fascinating to me. I think, I've been thinking a lot about fatherhood because I'm a new father. Congratulations. Relatively new. I have a one-year-old and Father's Day just happened. Yeah. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about how you have, that's a big responsibility to represent God, the Heavenly Father, right. in a certain way as right. in that role. And the fact that it implicitly has more power when you're speaking in that way to your son or daughter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what people kind of underestimate? You as a father are framing our view of spirituality. You're framing our theology. It's terrifying. I, no pressure. No pressure, yeah. Rich. None at all. <laughs> None at all. Start saving for your child's therapy right now. Uh-huh. Um, but 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 I I my understanding of God, of his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his forgiveness is demonstrated and has been demonstrated by my father. And so now as a parenting, I am a step parent, but we, I mean, I fully identify with a parent because we have the kids 60% of the time and walking this journey, it's so different on this side. And when I want to lose my, my mind, when I want to look at my child and say, I did not bring you into this world, but I will take you out. It's in those moments that I realize I could be like Jesus in this moment. Yeah, that's good. That's the worst, though, because I'm like, oh, I have to be nice and loving right now. You know, Bianca, I haven't said your name yet. <laughs> How would you, Bianca, define your calling? 
I would say that I want and desire to be someone who declares who God is over people's lives in a prophetic way. I want, and not like a kooky, crazy way, but I want my ear to the ground and I want to hear what God's saying for his people. I want to speak that out over his people. I am a teacher and heralder of God's word. I am a wife to Matt and a mom to Parker and Ryan. I'm chief storyteller for A21, we're a global anti-human trafficking organization, creative director for Propel women and a new first time author so i'm not trying to put you in a box but i want to ask no one puts me in a box i I dare you i want to ask the question of you and see if you have an answer which is do, do any of those do you have something that sort of is the overarching idea that unites all of those things together are you just doing like a lot of disparate things. You know what? I've never been asked this question. And so if I had to synthesize everything that I'm doing for this season of my life, and God, of course, can change that, but I would have to say I get to be a storyteller. Hmm. I made up my title at A21, and my title is Chief Storyteller. Yeah. And I felt like it was nebulous for a reason. It encompassed a lot. Hmm. And I feel yeah. like in this season, because my hand is in so many different pots, I get to be a storyteller. I get to tell of God's redeeming love, uh, His redeeming grace the art of transformation over the lives of survivors of human trafficking, over the lives of my stepkids, mm-hmm. over the lives of people at church. So I would say if we can nut this down to one thing. Yeah. I get to tell people the stories of what God is doing around the globe. What were some other alternative job titles you came up with when they said to find your own job title? A coordinator of chaos. Oh, that's but funny. the acronym was bad. And it just, I work for a Christian environment. Stop. Don't think yeah, about it. Don't no. think about it. Yeah, exactly, friend. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and then I thought of Ultimate Party Planner. Uh, they didn't like that because they couldn't put me in a box. But I told- Up is like a great youth group acronym, though. exactly yes yes um i think there were there was another one that was just i mean it was absolutely asinine but i really liked it i thought it was creative but they didn't let me i got away you haven't said yet I haven't said it on the air. I can't remember it. I just remember it was awesome. Okay. I remember it was so awesome, but apparently... You can't add an asinine one and then not... I us. know, I know, I know. Well, you know, I think I don't remember it because it was so out of left field and they allowed me to do Chief Storyteller because yeah. I wouldn't sign my paperwork unless I was able to have that. And then just about two years ago, they said, we're going to have to try, you know, because we're professional here at A21. We uh-huh. have to put you, you know, categorize. Uh-huh. And then they realized they couldn't put me in a box and neither can you, Rich. Okay. I brought that around. I brought that around. That's, a, yes. that's impressive. Um, <laughs> what was the moment in your life? And maybe you just described it, but what was the moment in your life when you, when you realized that that was what you were called to do? Can I say on this podcast? Yeah. Because this kind of just happened right now. I've okay. never been forced to synthesize that. But I mean, ultimately, at the yeah. end of the day, I love telling stories of redemption and transformation. Yeah. And that is the essence and the heart of the gospel. So that's very exciting for me. I, But I would say like on a personal journey of recognition, I think learning to read, I learned to read at a very late age. And um, I was about 12 years old. And there was something about the beauty of storytelling and the power of words that I would say, I kind of made a, a, a wager. This is Pascal's wager. I would wager on the fact that God could answer my prayer. And I dared him, give me words. You're a Christian at this point? I was. Eight, I was raised old? I was raised in a Christian home. Okay. So, uh, and I'm a pastor's daughter. I swore I would never ma- marry a pastor. And now I'm a pastor's wife because God says, don't tell me what to do. So, I mean, I memorized John 3.16 at the age of three, literally. Like, I played Bible baseball and I was hitting those home runs all day, every day. Is that day. a game? Oh, have you not played? You're not a Christian, Rich. I don't know. I just... You have not played Bible baseball? No. First base are the easy questions and I would always choose home run. Is it... A board game? No, we played it on the chalkboard. 
It's a chalkboard game. Well, you know what? I, I went a to church in the hood. Game. So Beth, maybe maybe y'all where you were raised I in Alabama, not, you had better games than we did. Yeah. But we actually it would ask questions uh-huh. from the Bible and the easy questions like how many days did it take God to create the earth? Mm-hmm. You know, they'd be like first base. And then second base was, can you name the apostles? Okay. Can you name all 66 books of the Bible? Guess what? I turned that into a rap. Yes, this homegirl turned <laughs> 66 books of the Bible into a rap. That's home run right there, Rich. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, I know. That sounds fun. You can now teach your children. I teach Sunday school for grade schoolers, and we... <gasps> they would love it, Rich. So we played Hangman, Bible Hangman, for a while. Weak sauce. But, <laughs> but then... No, get this. My wife was like, Hangman's offensive. For all sorts <gasps> of reasons. So we changed it to Snowman. <laughs> oh, so stop. I have to, every single every single week, I have to go through this whole explanation of Hangman's Offensive. So we're playing Snowman and they're just like, no. No. <laughs> and then I, now it's just funny to me. So I go through a whole thing of like, the reason, the reason we don't want to make a snowman is because it's summertime. And if we make a snowman in the summertime, he'll be sad and he'll die because it's You're going to give these children nightmares. Let's just stick with Bible baseball. I ever, will give you all the rules afterwards. Do you ever teach kids? I don't know why I'm into, but the thing is like when you teach kids, you have so many moments where you're like, I've said the wrong thing. Oh, I do that all the time. Like you have those moments where the words come out of your mouth and you're just like, oh, Mac to me. Like um, the paralytic being lowered into the roof to see Jesus. Yes. I went into about how sometimes you love Jesus so much you break the rules. I don't know why I said that. Stop it. I was like, it's all about grace and you break the rules sometimes. That's okay as long as you love Jesus. That's not what those kids needed to hear at that moment. It might have been. Because Jesus, could fi- I, I like to I say mean, F-I-J, yeah. fix it, Jesus. Yeah. It's beyond me. You're going to have to go fix it. Send the Holy Spirit. Put a Band-Aid on that. <laughs> so, okay. So, you're eight years old and you are a Christian. I am. And do you remember a moment where you became a Christian or you just always felt like you were a Christian? As long as you're conscious. Now we're talking about theological comps is once saved, always saved. Are, are we are we going that deep right Not now, Rich? Only if you no, want to. No, it, I'm just People kidding. People have different experiences. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. the range of responses to that question. <laughs> I would say... I would classify myself as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian my whole life. It was something, yes, I was born into, but even at a young age, I would write out scripture. I would give my parents scriptures. I would evangelize to random people in the grocery market. I just have always just really been about Jesus. Never went off the rails, never drank, like broke any rules. I'm pretty much a rule follower. Um, Did that ever change? Did you ever have a moment where you broke real rules and you were like, oh no. You know what? It was actually... The only time that I broke the rule, so I, uh, this book that I came out with called Play With Fire, and this, the concept of me being a rule follower is I never wanted to break the rules. And I would say the first time that I really broke the rules was kind of keeping God in a box and keeping the Holy Spirit in God in a way on a pedestal or something that I looked at. You know, this I feel like we can get real with our, our, our friends online, but for me, I realized that I had viewed God and the divine and the manifestation of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, kind of like spiritual pornography, where it was something to be looked at, but not touched, to be mm. desired, but not ours. And it was kind of like this shift for me, like God was inviting me to be in an intimate personal relationship that I had seen others have, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how they got there. I did all the right things. I read all the right Bible verses. I went to vacation Bible school. I played Bible baseball, Rich. <laughs> like, I should be guaranteed entrance to heaven. And it was kind of like God was saying, put all of that aside. All the religiosity, all the Christianese, all the check marks and the to-do lists for this relationship with God and be with me. Enter into a dangerous understanding of who I am 
and who I've created you to be and how I love you, even though you're jacked up, even though you're marred, tore up from the floor up. This is who I've created you to be. And I love you for who you are. At what point in your life was this? I would look at that moment and I vividly remember I was at a woman's retreat. Okay. And I was 21 years old. 21. And it was like literally my yeah. ha- my life was hot mess express. And I was the captain. Choo choo. It was like mm-hmm. everything was up in flames. I was in a dysfunctional relationship with a man I affectionately referred to as Satan. Uh, my younger sister. At that mo- when you were in the relationship with him? I you kind of to still referred to him as Satan. No, at the, then I refer- referred to him as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Okay, I will yeah. marry you. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. No, but. Now I, you refer to him as Satan. I, I was going to say, that's tongue a in red cheek. flag when you call him Satan. Tongue in cheek. No, not when we were dating. Yeah. I really thought that that was the man I was destined to marry. Got and it. that dysfunctional relationship for three years, um, we broke up multiple times. And friends, if you're listening and you've broken up with the same person multiple times, you break up because the relationship is broken. That is free advice. Save yeah. yourself $150 of therapy. And I'm just telling you right now, if you break up multiple times because the relationship is broken. Well, we had broken up and my younger sister was uh, strung out on drugs. and was just, I mean, going south fast. My mom was diagnosed not with one, but two forms of cancer. One of them was brain cancer. I was in my senior year of college. I was there on academic scholarship. So I needed to maintain a certain GPA. And I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. So I definitely had to maintain a certain GPA. It was, there was, everything was up in the air and exploding at the same time. Mm. And it was at that moment where I just had to come to, come to Jesus moment where it became less of a confession of faith and more of a profession of, I need you to do something. I need you to show up in this moment. And that was kind of when God invited me to, do bold and daring things like break the rules and play with fire. Up in the air and exploding at the same time is a good description. One that I relate to. I had a moment a few years ago where I was going through both a divorce and my dad was dying of cancer. Wow. And there is something about it, not just everything exploding, but the fact of it, you being in the middle of it. Right. And waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Like waiting for this to end. The limbo of it is the worst part. The worst, yep. But the way you just framed it as a time, a period for you to listen to God is pretty profound to me. Because those were the periods where I found, for me, it was a passion for the local church, right? Mm -hmm. I think we all have the thing we need to hear from God to like Mm -hmm. thrust us forward in our Mm -hmm. calling. And so now, you know, now I'm like formally passionate about the local church. It's like a thing that's framed my life. At that time, it was the, the thing that the local church, like, was ministering to me in particular ways in those moments. Mm-hmm. So it's it's yeah, that's interesting to me and profound that you would you would frame that as the time that God used to speak to your life. I believe it was Dallas Willard that said, mm-hmm. "When you're at the end of the rope, tie a knot and hold on." And I think like sometimes when we can't cling to all of our little gods that we create unintentionally yeah. or intentionally, then we're left to ultimately surrender to the God. And when you can control nothing, when literally everything feels like it's just up in the air and in a thousand pieces, that's ultimately when I believe, and we see even throughout scripture, it's the Garden Gethsemane moment. It's Mm, the call to me and I'll come to you out in the water moment. It's when we cash everything in and say, if you're real, I need you to show up. Right. And I think it's like a big thing, I think, theologically for us is, I, will I love God and will I serve him? And will I still think that he's good, even if he doesn't give me what I want on my timeline? So you kind of you kind of took that moment and you called God's bluff in a way, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You said, yeah, okay, I believe you. How did God respond to that? 
for you with fireworks and he parted uh, the Red Sea and sent manna. I would love to tell you that because that's really that would have made this story so much ask better. Literally, no, that would make this so much so much better. Like, why can't I be the children of Israel? You know what? Can you, God, can you part this Red Sea for me? I, I can look back and see that's my proverbial Red Sea parting. That is the proverbial manna that God gave to provide. But um, it was a slow process. But what I was asking for was God heal my mom, God fix this situation, God bring my family back, God make me feel loved, God make me feel whole. But what I really was ultimately craving, which even if he would have fixed all those things, I don't think it would have fixed the hole in my gaping heart was, God, I want to be in relationship with you. Mm-hmm. And if that is the cornerstone and the bedrock of our relationship with God, then everything else is a manifestation of our desired perfection. So what God did in me first before answering any of my questions, I could now look back and that was, goodness, 15 years ago, I am now married. I feel chosen. My mom was healed, but I had to come to a point where I said, even if you take my mom, I'm choosing to believe that you're good. While still holding on to the tension of, I believe that you're able, I believe that you can, I believe that you're good, I believe that you're the God of the impossible, I believe that you can do miracles today, but even if you don't, I choose to serve you. My younger sister is now married and off drugs, and she's pregnant, expecting her first child, the very first grandchild for our family. My ex-boyfriend, Satan, married somebody else, and so we say, thank God for unanswered prayer. I graduated college. I went on to graduate graduate school. And I don't want this to sound like an after school special. You know, I don't want this to sound like Disneyland. But what I have to do to at least hold the integrity of my story is that God is faithful Mm -hmm. and it wasn't perfect. God didn't give us the perfect land. He gave us the promised land and God's promises were manifest in my life, but it has taken 15 years to see the goodness of God in the land of living. You know, we sow in hope and we reap in faith. And I feel like that's what that's what I got to experience. And that's really what I want to communicate with people. You sure, know? sure. A lot of those desires weren't, uh, you know, un, were unmet. Nothing's perfect. I'm still believing for the promises of God to manifest in my life, even over those some, some of those situations that I've even spoken to you now. Yeah. But God is faithful and has been really good. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh, that raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What was it about the women's retreat that caused that realization to happen? Okay, so I grew up in a conservative home and a conservative church where we spoke about the Holy Spirit, uh, but I don't feel like I really had an understanding of that. And anything that I did, anything that I had saw like on television or like in crazy churches was just fearful for me. And the fact that we referred to it as the Holy Ghost was just like really creepy to me. Like, what is this, Casper? Like, like Ghostbusters right now? Like, what is it? I I had no concept of it. So we we spoke about it theoretically. We spoke about it theologically. I just don't feel like I had the practicality of what that looked like. And so I, the only reason why I went to the women's retreat, I didn't want to go. My mom, like I had mentioned, was diagnosed with two forms of 
cancer and like when your mom is dying of cancer and given a 30% chance of living and she asks you to go to a woman's retreat that she's planned for the last 10 years and talks about all this life change you can't tell her no well if you're my evil twin sister I have a twin sister her name is Jasmine we joke that she's the evil one <laughs> because my mom invited both of us and she said no can you believe it wow so I'm the good twin and I said okay mom I'll go with you yeah and I went begrudgingly I thought all the women were going to talk about like menopause and kids and you know dumping their children with their husband and everyone it was going to be like girls gone wild but for year old mom style that's kind of what i thought but it was at that retreat where there was an optional workshop on the holy spirit so it was during a break time when people were drinking cappuccinos or hanging out by the pool and i said this sounds interesting to me so there was about 500 women at the retreat but there was only five women who attended the, the optional, optional workshop, workshop. The holy spirit and yeah. it was super awkward because i'm the pastor's daughter and I got there and it was way intimate, which I kind of felt like, oh my gosh, we might have to talk. And I just don't want to talk to people right now because <laughs> yeah. that's weird. Uh -huh. And um, I was going to like fiend a headache or like say I got sick and then just leave. But I can't lie because that would just make me the perfect Pharisee. So I was like, okay, I'll stay. Well, I stayed and I will never remember a woman by the name. I'll never forget a woman by the name of Kathy Slater who spoke about the Holy Spirit. She was probably around 65, 70 at the time, white hair. And she wore these white orthopedic shoes. And there was nothing about this woman that was dynamic or charismatic or like extra. She was so normal. She was so real. But she spoke about the Holy Spirit with such intimacy. She spoke about this God that was so real and so like in tune with her. And I knew her life. I knew what she had lost. I knew that her children were working with the Lord. I knew that her husband was sick. And yet she had such joy. She had such an abundance of faith, such an abundance of hope. The words that she spoke were theologically rooted in scripture, but there was nothing that was like super theological about what she said. Hmm. She just made the Holy Spirit real. And she spoke about not just the natural gifts, but she spoke about supernatural things like, like God is alive and active today. And he promised us the Holy Spirit. And, and then she spoke about possible manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And even that word manifestations just freaks me out. Even to this yeah. day, like talking about manifestations, that just sounds weird. But literally, that God can give somebody a word from him. That's a prophetic word. Mm -hmm. That God can give somebody a word of knowledge. That's a word of knowledge that Paul speaks about in the Bible. God could heal somebody. Um, and it was at that retreat where after the workshop, we went to dinner. And no, there was no fireworks or anything, but there was something that sparked it was like an ember of faith, it, I, I would say. And then that night, there was a main message and then worship. And then there was just this time of like waiting. Like we just were worshiping. And I can't explain it to you. And I felt like a spectator at a sport where I had, I felt like I was actually playing the sport. I was knowledgeable of the sport. I knew the rules. I spoke the nomenclature. I spoke the language. I felt like I was wearing a jersey. But I wasn't playing the game. I was just watching. Mm. People were experiencing God in a way that I had never like seen. They were worshiping with hands lifted, heart abandoned, and that's a Hillsong lyric. But that really was <laughs> happening. Uh -huh. And 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 I saw women go forward for prayer for healing. I saw women on their knees asking God to reveal Himself to them. I I I witnessed people who were experiencing such depravity walking out with such a renewed sense of faith in God and and believing. And this is a quick story. I was a youth leader at the time and one of the girls that was in my youth group, her name was Tasha, and we had been praying for her mom who had been sick. Every Wednesday night at youth group she'd come in and every Wednesday night I would pray for her mom and her mom was sick, her mom was sick. Well, uh, a couple weeks later, we discovered that her mom had thyroid cancer. Her, we would pray for her mom now with specificity her mom had thyroid cancer. But like I said, there was 500 women at this retreat. I didn't see everyone that was there. Well, that night, 
Kathy, the one who led the workshop, was kind of leading and moderating this time of just like worship. And she said, I just feel impressed in my heart. I believe that there's somebody here that has a sickness here. And she was holding her at the right side of her throat. And I'm like, well, that's weird. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see Tasha's mom stand up as Kathy says, we are going to pray in faith that God can heal you. We don't know what God's going to do, but we are going to ask God to heal you. And I was like, that's a coincidence. That is total coincidence. That's happenstance. Mm -hmm. Definitely not providence. Like, no, 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 no. (laughs) See, I made that rhyme, even though it's providence, but I made that rhyme because I'm ultimately a hip hopper at heart. (laughs) Uh, Well, anyways, Tasha's mom went forward for prayer and I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. The night went on. And again, if I could bottle it to kind of explain what I experienced, I think that you would have a great understanding of who God is. I can't. But uh, that Wednesday... On Tuesday, Tasha had uh, called me to say that her mom was going to go in for uh, the biopsy for her cancer to see kind of what stage it was and all this other stuff. On Wednesday night at youth group, she runs, she comes into youth group, she's running through the doors, tears in her eyes. And she says, Bianca, you won't believe it. The doctors can't find my mom's cancer. Mm-hmm. It's completely gone. And in that moment, I knew that God was the God of the impossible. I knew that he was God of miracles. I just didn't think that that was for today. I didn't think that was for us. I was serving at a church in East Los Angeles, California. It's blue collar environment. And yet God was so mindful and cared about this family who's experienced such loss. And the backstory to that is their mom had thyroid cancer, but God had used the thyroid cancer to bring the fractured family together. And the healing of the cancer actually brought the wayward father back to faith. Huh. It was just such a beautiful story of redemption. Yeah. And I'm I, that was kind of like the ember grew and it was sparking the flame of faith. And I said, whatever Kathy has, I want that. Yeah. I want this faith. I want the power of the Holy Spirit to be evident in my life. So that was kind of, I would you frame that as a call to ministry? No, because my dad was a pastor and I didn't want to be poor. So I just wanted to be rich. <laughs> I wanted uh-huh. to be rich. I wanted to own my own art gallery in Los Angeles. No, I did not want to do ministry. When did you feel the call to ministry? I was you? in graduate school. At this okay. point, I was now 24. Uh, like I said, I was doing youth ministry and stuff like that, volunteering at the church. But during that time, I was in graduate school and my classes were at night. And during the day, I would... Uh, my friend who was the secretary at church was on maternity leave and there was no one to answer phones or be the photo fairy. Mm -hmm. So being the Christian person I was, I was like, I'll help out, you Mm -hmm. know? So I showed up and it was only, it was only for two months, but there was a transition with the youth pastors. One of the old youth pastor was transitioned to the new youth pastor because the new, the old youth pastor's wife was pregnant and they were planning to go to camp, except she went into premature labor. And I happened to be in the office when the old youth pastor told the new youth pastor, guess what, bro? I can't go. You're going to have to lead this. The new youth pastor had never been a youth pastor ever. He was a wrestling coach for crying out loud. And there was a call of ministry upon his life. Kind of the same thing though, to be honest. You, actually, yes. Cause they're smelly <laughs> and you're trying to wrangle people exactly yeah, the same. Yeah. And so, um, I remember sitting in the office and I wasn't eavesdropping, but I was totally eavesdropping. Yeah. And you could just hear the desperation in his voice. And he's just like, wait, I can't do this. There's a hundred kids going to this camp. I don't know what I'm doing. Like (laughs) it's a town hour drive to Tahoe. And so he leaves and clearly the new youth pastor's name was Joseph was like stressed. Like I just felt it from another room, felt it through the walls radiating, and he was just stressed. And so I didn't really mean it. I was just trying to be a good Christian Mm because like that's the best pastor's kid move. Like just act like you're a really good Christian. So I was like, Joseph, if you need any help, let me know. And he's like, yes. I said, what? I wasn't expecting him to say yes. And I was like, well, like, let me pray about it. He's like, no, 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 you don't have to pray about it. I said, well, I'm in graduate school and uh, I don't have a lot of money. He pulled out a checkbook. (laughs) Who uses checkbooks? Uh This brother had a checkbook. He pulled out a checkbook and paid for me that day. $180 for me to go to youth camp. 
And that following weekend, we had 110 youth from East Los Angeles, California, caravanning in 15 passenger vans up to Lake Tahoe. And the reason why he was absolutely incredibly desperate is because I was the only female youth leader for a hundred kids. Yeah. And of that, there were, I think there was like 60 girls. And so hmm. we split up one night and he was like, okay, it's going to be the guy's study and this going to be the girl's study. And he's like, you can teach the girls. And I said, I've never taught a Bible study in my life. And he's like, you're a pastor's kid. Of course, you know how to teach God's word. That <laughs> is a lie because uh-huh. not all pastor's kids can teach. But what I happened to discover is he had a moment of clarity, maybe, where I just like freaked out. And I'm like, I don't know if I could do this. And so when in doubt, go to Psalms. I went to Psalms and there was one Psalm that was resonating with me at the time. And I'll never forget, I taught out of it. And there was something about teaching and expositing God's word that was so invigorating. and they liked it and they felt like it was relevant. And Mm. I feel like there's a part of me that still teaches like to the base, you know, like I resonate with people that really don't have like extreme Bible knowledge. I am very knowledgeable. I love communicating deep theological truths, but I want to do it in a way that is engaging and practical. Mm -hmm. And so starting youth ministry was such a great foundation for that. And I would say that is what I, I came back and I finished graduate school, but my heart wasn't there. I didn't want to go get my PhD. I didn't want to open up an art gallery. I wanted to hang out with smelly kids and teach God's word. And that was kind of like the turning point. Once you started doing that, what was the first like formal way that you started to do? Did you start working in that position? No, I never, I've actually never got paid to do ministry. Okay. Um, I now get paid, but I work for a nonprofit organization. Right. It's a ministry in my heart. And it's a, I mean, yeah. we're a 501c3, we're an NGO, but what we do is ministry. But bar that, no, I had never been paid to do ministry. So I was volunteering at the church. Actually, no, there was a season where I got part-time pay Uh filling in to help the pastor. So I was doing like event planning. But so I did get paid for that in a part-time position, but I was doing youth ministry on the side. And we had a youth group of about 40 to 50. Uh And three years later, the youth group had grown to 500. This is when you become... Uh, really aware of your desire to teach, yes. of your desire to sort of share the message that God has for people. Did you ever struggle after that with that calling? Did you ever mm-hmm. come to yeah. a place where you were like, you know, I was so sure and now I think I may have been wrong? Yeah, actually. Um, and it wasn't because of lack of education. It was more to do with my gender. Mm. Uh, there was some that came up to me and said, it's so great what you're doing with the youth, but you'll never be able to be a pastor. So it's kind of in vain. Mm. And I remember walking away that conversation and it's one of those like bless your heart moments. And what I discovered yeah. from some of my friends in, in the South is that when someone blesses your heart, they're really not blessing your heart. No. Yeah. They're essentially saying, you sure yeah. is stupid, uh-huh. you know? <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. it was one of those bless your heart moments because I remember walking away and feeling like, is this in vain? God, am am is this a sin? I wasn't even preaching, uh, teaching. I was just serving youth ministry. Was this a was this a person trying to say you shouldn't be doing this because you're a woman, or was this a person trying to sort of like uh, let you know that there are people out there who are not going to let you be pastor, so this is pointless? I think it was a little bit of both. Okay, I think it was a little bit of both. Okay. Retrospectively looking, in the moment I was so taken back. I'm, sure, you know, I viewed it as filling a gap. Like I just stood up. Because no one was standing in, you uh-huh. know? Um, so that was more of like the lines. And then another person said, like, came up to me and said, well, if you were a boy, you would totally take over this church for your dad. Mm-hmm. 
And it's one of those like, mm, thank, thank you. Yeah. I, I don't really know if that's a compliment. But um, so I had that moment where God, did you make a mistake in my gender or God, I, 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 I don't have formal training to teach God's word. And I would never, my heart is to bring God's word unparalleled and uncompromised. And so if there's anything I ever do or say that does that, then mm-hmm. I, I, maybe I'm not fit for this. So I had those moments. But ultimately, it, I, how I kind of reconcile it is I take the study of God's word very seriously. I am looking at, at going back and getting additional education. But for right now, I know that I'm reconciling every night that I go to bed. I want to tell God when I play his voice in my head, what did you do with my son? I want to tell him that every person that I encountered got to experience your love, your grace, your truth, and your mercy. And if there's an opportunity for me to do that by proclaiming scripture, then I will. So whether that's on a stage, whether that's in a grocery line, whether that's in traffic, or whether that's at my desk, behind my cubicle at work, I'm going to be a representation of Jesus Christ. Human trafficking. Mm -hmm. When you talk about human trafficking, that is not a safe subject. That's not a subject where, so you talk in your book about not being safe. You talk about about taking risks, right? And so what what is it about this subject that, that you gravitated to, that you decided you wanted to talk about this? I don't feel I knew in the beginning why, because the mm-hmm. only framework that I had for human trafficking was that movie Taken with Liam Neeson that came out a couple years ago. Yeah. Uh, it came out seven years ago, and I vividly remember watching that movie. And then I heard the founder of our organization, Christine Kane, at a Christian conference for leaders, And I remember thinking, this is so appalling. I cannot believe this. I'm so glad that there's good Christians who are giving up their lives to do this. But Frederick Douglass said, a conscious cannot stand violence. And I remember that I lived that out because when Christine was done, I was moved to tears after she spoke and shared stories of of survivors of human trafficking. And then we walked out and I was like, okay, what's the plan for the day? Where are we going for lunch? When's the next session? And it just escapes your mind. But it was almost that the issue Mm. started haunting me. Yeah. And what I didn't realize, like why it resonated with me is ultimately I so desperately wanted to be free. I wanted to be free of the girl that lived in the hood. I wanted to be Mm. free of the obese girl. I wanted to be free of who people thought I was and the stereotypes that they thought I was. And ultimately, though my freedom looked differently than those who are trafficked into slavery, we were experiencing captivity. Mine was a spiritual captivity and theirs was a physical captivity, but ultimately what resonated with them is the freedom that I have found in Christ. I now want others to experience. So yes, my day job is to advocate and 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 help release slaves across the globe. Yeah. My spiritual job and this man- mantle that I carry, this mandate that I have is I also want even Christians to be free. Mm-hmm. Free from legalism, free from addiction, free from self-hate. I want that. I know I've experienced a transforming work of God in my life and I want to usher that in for other people. In the context of your calling, what is the deepest fear that you have? My greatest fear is that I will squander the time and the opportunity that God has given me. I'm a driver. I'm a hustler. You know, I, I think like first generation Americans usually are. We get to live out the American dream. So yeah. I have opportunities that my parents would have never had as a Hispanic and as a Hispanic female. I don't think that there are a lot of Latinas out there that are really pushing forward, at least in the American landscape, kind of some of these issues. And so I'm like, God, if you've given me this opportunity, if you've given me this favor, I want to steward that. And I want to make sure that I am representing 
you and how you've uniquely created me from my heritage to my ethnicity to my gender to proclaim and herald what you're doing. What are those unique issues that you're talking about? Those those specific issues? You know, we're culturally in a place where we're voting for a new president. And of course, these issues of immigration yeah. and are, are on the table. I think the the woman issue specifically, the woman issue, the irony is the woman issue outside of the church isn't, it's a non-issue. A non-issue, yeah. But the woman issue inside the church yeah. is still a very big issue. Mm-hmm. I think also, you know, step parenting in the church. What does divorce look like? My husband was divorced uh, with biblical grounds. Um, but yet even that caveat that I gave kind of, it's like, well, that was, that's a safe divorce. You've we can spell it out. You, oh yeah. yeah. You know, You've and, spell it out. right. And then, you know, step parenting, what does this look like for people who are married again or single again? What's the church's response to that? How are we engaging? How are we engaging with biblical truths in a world of, you know, what is relevant and is there an ultimate truth? All of these issues I've come face to face with, I'm nutting them out. And I think parsing them down in a way that I'm not trying to provide answers. I think that God is going to illuminate and God is going to provide answers and wisdom through his word. But the more that we get to dialogue and discuss it, I think is is a great starting point. And I love being kind of like the initiator of conversations. Uh, what does the, being a Latina have to do with that in particular? My lens and filter is that of my father. Uh, my father came here legally, but it was for a short term. It was a short term visa. Okay. And he stayed. So at the age of eight, he was brought over with his mom. So technically he came legally, but he stayed illegally. So my father is a, uh, the, the, the language now uh, to say that somebody's an illegal immigrant in some subcultures is offensive. Yeah. Uh, but my father was here without proper documentation. And I think that the lens and filter that we can bring is that of not just Hispanics, but immigrants, immigrants that are coming to this country that are building into the economy, that are building into the fabric of America, that are upsetting citizens who are creating great relationships with people, building the church, loving God, serving God. And I get to not speak about it from a theoretical standpoint. Yeah. Um, I get to speak about it from a practical. Like I'm living this out. I am the fruit of my father who was allowed to be in this country. My father is legal now. He, at the age of uh, 18, he signed up to fight in Vietnam and um, he was sworn in that day. The Marine controller off at the controller at the Marine office um, had said, son, if you're willing to die for this country, we're willing to make you a citizen. And he gained a citizenship to this country. That's amazing. Yes. He hangs, uh, he flies a United States uh, of America flag and a USMC flag, Semper Fi Uh uh, on their porch, even till this day. Like Uh he is so proud to be American. Yeah. And uh, my husband has a heart for, for Europe and just kind of what God's doing out there. And so he's like, B, let's dream. Let's go to Europe. I said, baby, my dad came here illegally. I love me America. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hashtag America. I want to leave. <laughs> I love this place. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that like, let's kind of change Let's change the narrative. Yeah. I think a lot of the narrative that we're hearing online is, you know, these immigrants are taking jobs. These immigrants are depleting the economy. These immigrants are bringing sin into America and crimes. And listen, there is a percentage of that. But there's also a percentage of natural born Americans who are equally doing the same. So, again, I don't want to play the politics game. I love the narrative. When we take numbers and statistics, they're dehumanizing and desensitizing we put names and faces and that's where life changes and that's what we see throughout the gospels as well names and faces that's good Mm -hmm. that's i feel like uh that's the thing that's missing from a lot of the conversation absolutely particularly about immigrants but even just in general like uh you have theoretical conversations uh heady conversations about theology about Mm -hmm. morality about ethics even in the questions of you know the women in ministry those conversations 
whether you're a complementarian or egalitarian, you subscribe to these viewpoints, that you often run into a situation where you've got a Sunday school class or you've got a need that needs to be filled and there are people who are willing to do it. Let's have a conversation about that and yeah. what the Bible says about that. And it's really interesting. Like, I, I'm, I'm not the person that's going to go toe to toe on that. It's yeah. like, hey, if you, if you think it's okay for me to teach or preach, then I will. If you don't, I won't. It's all right. good. Don't invite me to your church. But um, I think everyone will agree if, if there's a need in Africa or there's missionaries that are needed in China, yeah. these women are more than equipped. But they, oh, they could teach men out there. But then we come back to America. Oh, no, no, you can't do that here. So I think it's a skewed line. And I think that's coming to the forefront. You know, sure. I think beyond just the color card, I think like, how do we show a picture of the gospel? How do we have a depiction of what heaven's going to look like? The most bifurcated and segregated day of the week is Sunday yeah. when everyone's going to their church with their people group. I'm not too sure that's what Jesus intended when he said to build the church. So sure. even to be able to participate in multi-ethnic, multi-generational, uh, multicultural churches is wonderful. Yeah. How has working out this calling in your life changed you? You know, I think growing up, I so desperately wanted to be what I thought American was. When everyone was eating peas and carrots, my family was eating rice and beans. When my friends were having sandwiches on Wonder Bread, I was having tortillas. When my friends were talking about going on vacation, I was hoping that there would be food on our table. So there was something that was so magical about being American. I thought American was had to look a certain way and talk a certain way and be a certain way. And I think that the older that I've gotten, I am so confident and so excited about the person that God has made me. And what I get to uniquely bring to the conversation is something different. So I want to celebrate not my voice or my ethnicity's voice, but the diversity between all of our voices coming together. It's a cacophony of voices that demonstrate God's unique crafting of color and gender and race and heritage and ethnicity. That's what gets me excited. So I think the idea of trying to matriculate and assimilate into American culture mm -hmm. meant losing who I was. And the very thing that has allowed me to be in the places that I am today is because of the things that make me different. Yeah. And that's exciting. We ask every person for the last question. If you had an opportunity to get in a time machine, go back in time, introduce yourself to yourself, what would you say to her? I think I would just tell myself not to have such a low view of what God can do, because hmm. it's what I'm telling myself now. I feel like I've settled for what is normal and what's possible, and like wishing, hoping, and batting my eyes at God to maybe give me a sliver of favor. And now I just. I'm fiercely going after with arms open wide. I want everything. I believe that you can do everything. And if you're not giving me something, I'm not talking about money or finances or Ferrari. I'm talking about everything, the fullness of who God is. If he doesn't give that to me or doesn't give me a certain gift or doesn't give me a certain opportunity or privilege, it's because it's not mine to have. Mm -hmm. But I just, I don't want to not ask because I'm afraid that God won't give. I, our God is, gives liberally and without reproach and yeah. he wants to pour out his blessings upon us. So now I'm just, I'm telling myself like, don't be afraid to ask for stupid, audacious things. What was the signs that you had a low view of what God could do? Maybe some of the language that I heard growing up within a church or various churches. Don't ask for those things. Those things are selfish. To break that down, I, I think I've mentioned this, that I grew up very poor. Okay. And so when 
you have other people of wealth and influence saying, don't ask for certain things because that's selfish. And you're poor and you need certain things. That kind of could jack you up. My mom, I think, was such a woman of faith and is such a woman of faith and kind of transformed my view of prayer. But yet even then, we were praying for basic needs and even some pretty impossible things. We drove by a billboard of uh, Toyota had this van in the 90s called a Previa. It was kind of like, think of like a boiled egg, but like cut in half with wheels. That was a Previa. And we saw this billboard of this very American family. And I remember driving past this billboard every Wednesday night after church. And the family looked so perfect. And they had a dog and it was maroon. And I remember looking at this and saying, I want that car. I want that car. And I told my mom, I want that car. We were driving around a borrowed car from somebody. It was, think of it, it's, it was called a Chinook, which are now illegal. They were like mini campers. Our family car was a camper. Okay, wow. we were like gypsies. Yeah. And it was given to us by someone from church. And I was like, Mom, I, I want that car. And both my sister and I began to pray. And my mom had this prayer list that she put up on the wall. And she handed us a marker and said, put the van up there. And we put maroon Toyota Previa. A year later, we got a maroon Toyota Previa. Wow. I know. This is not like <laughs> prosperity gospel, friend. This is God of the impossible is uh-huh. what that is. <laughs> you know, he just winks at us. And I'm thinking, I want to go back to have that childlike faith again, yeah. to believe that I could ask for something and God can give it to me. Yeah. And if he doesn't give it to me, it's just because I will probably, as James says, ask amiss. I'm asking for gain, your selfish gain or something. Yeah. So now I'm just going to be asked, like, I work for an NGO. And I'm very blessed, but uh, we can't afford to live in Orange County. We can't afford to buy a house in Orange County. You know what I'm praying for? When I go on my runs in the morning, I literally lift a hand like Joshua over land. And I'm like, Lord, you're going to give us this land. Does that sound like prosperity gospel? No, it sounds like a girl who so desperately wants to have a house to open it up and have people come in. My God is faithful. He can give that to me. If I don't have it right now, it's because it's not mine to be had. So I'm just asking for like those things, but like physical things, but then also spiritual things. I want an outpouring of God's spirit in my life so desperately. Like, I, and like, I want, I mean, I'm hearing all these gnarly stories of stuff that's going on in Latin America and in Africa and in Asia of just supernatural things that God's are doing across the globe. And I'm like, Lord, bring that here. Yeah. Uh, give me, give me, give me, give me a glimpse of it. Give me a dose of it. I want to, I want to see what you have for this amazing country. Bianca Juarez Althoff is a preacher and teacher and the chief storyteller at A21. She's also the creative director for Propel Women. She also wrote a book. It's called Play With Fire. It is out August 30th. That's this coming Tuesday, if you're listening to this podcast on the day that it comes out, which I think all of you do, probably. Anyway, it's a really good book. It's a very human, raw, personal, honest book. She talks about her life in there, and just what it means to be used by God and the Holy Spirit's involvement in that is really challenging. Thoughtful book, so check it out. You can find her on Twitter at Bianca Olthoff. That's B-I-A-N-C-A-O-L-T-H-O-F-F. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. Tell us who you want to see next. Tell us what your favorite podcast was. Give us a question. Any of those things would be awesome. Helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray R. Red. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.